before I got into cannabis, I was hardcore libertarian. I was like, we don't need regulations. If you make a bad product, people will stop buying it. Cannabis has showed me that's not true. If you make a bad product that is damaging to someone's health long-term, they're not going to know it or recognize that the product is causing the problem. And therefore, they're not going to vote with their dollars in that space. And so we really do need safety regulations from preventing people from doing really bad things because it's happening so often. The whole system is broken. We basically have, and this is going to be a really inflammatory statement, we borderline have state-run cartels protecting industry as long as they get their cut. And so on both sides of the cannabis legal framework, we need better regulations for consumer sake. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I am your host, Shada Taravi, and today I am joined by Chris Fontes. I am so So I feel like you can only say so, so many times, but I truly mean it. This conversation has been a long time coming. So genuinely excited to have you on the show, Chris. Welcome to To Be Blunt. Please give us a a quick introduction. Who are you? What's your business? How long have you been in the industry? And let's get right into it. Yeah. First off, thanks for having me. We've been playing a podcast tag for, I feel like a year and a half at least. Yes, that is Um, accurate. I really appreciate you you working around my crazy schedule and, and making this happen. Thank you so much and and fitting me into your crazy schedule as well. Yeah, so my name is Chris Fonts or Fontes or Fontes, and I am the CEO and founder of High Spirit Beverages as well as Trojan Horse Cannabis. Both brands are still active and 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 pumping. I entered the space back in 2018. I launched a company named Hemp Exchange, which for anyone that was in the hemp supply side of things back in 2018, 2019, probably has interacted with that business at least once. And through that business, we were trying to secure a stable supply chain for folks because this is back in the day for those that aren't OG enough. Uh, you, you could buy a truckload of isolate and get powdered sugar. And that was just how it went. And you just rolled the dice every time. It was wild. Uh, so we tried to stabilize that. And in doing so, we understand legis- had to understand federal legislation very well, state legislation. I would call ag departments and be like, hey, can you un- help me understand your regulations for importing and exporting of crude? And they'd be like, what's crude? And I'd be like, okay, let's do some education first so you know what we're talking about, and then let's talk about it. And so early, early, early formative years working with departments of ag and health departments to understand the space, what was happening. They had A lot of them had no idea that these laws are being passed, and this is happening now. Um, ag departments knew that hemp was able to be grown, but they didn't know what happened after that. They didn't understand the product supply chain really at all. Anyway, so Hemp Exchange ended up working out for a while and ended up having to transition away from it for various reasons that are beyond the scope of the show, but moved into Project Hempflower. So I had a passion for farmers and helping them move their products. And a lot of these farmers, some of them had cannabis experience before farming hemp and thought, hey, I'm going to make really high quality smokable hemp flour just because it's low THC doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And they were growing it and curing it properly and creating a really nice bag appeal, nice smoke, uh, nice effects option that was all completely federally legal. And But a lot of these farmers didn't have the wherewithal to really sell direct to consumer. And they were having difficulty moving and building a brand for themselves because a lot of farmers had never really done that before in a 
public way. So what we did was we took their product on consignment, broke it up into grams, eights, quarters, and ounces, took really nice pictures of it, got independent third-party panels, had a, a, a panel of judges smoke it, and then write down their rating system for it. And then we put it on the website. And whenever somebody bought, they knew what farm they were buying from, whether it was indoor, or outdoor, or greenhouse, what the CBD and Delta 9 and THC percentages were, et cetera, et cetera. And that way they can build some brand following. That worked out really well for us for a long time. And we sort of raised the bar at the time. A lot of the e-commerce sites that were selling flour were selling stuff that kind of smelled and tasted like hay, was brown. Very few folks were getting it right. And we sort of put the pressure on the space to like, hey, step up your game. This is cannabis we're talking about. You got to produce a product that's at least reasonably good. But unfortunately for us, Delta 8 came on the scene, which is good for the space, but wasn't good for our business because it blew up really fast. And, you know, we knew about it for six months, at least before it hit big. And uh, people started calling us and saying, hey, do you sell D8 flour? And we had already done the work to talk to some chemists to understand how is this made? What are the what are the concerns? Is it totally safe? And at the time, there was too many unknowns for us to get into it. And there's still a part of me, even if you support Delta 8, there's still a part of me that doesn't like sprayed flour, really in any sense. And I'm not the type of person that's going to go buy Moon Rocks or THCA sprayed flour, or it's just not for me. I like, I, if I'm going to smoke flour, I want it to be flour and just flour. And so we decided not to participate in that space and it really crushed our business. It's pretty much most flour. Uh, if it wasn't D8, it wasn't moving. So we decided we have to do something different. We wanted to sell some edibles or something like that. And back in 2018, when I was reading the original farm bill, I saw the 0.3%. And my first thought was, I wonder how big of a gummy you need to get a 10 milligram gummy made out of hemp. Why can't we do this? And immediately recognized the opportunity for Delta 9 to be a product category in hemp. And uh, finally decided, you know what, if Delta 8 is going to explode like this, uh, I'm not the guy that's making uh, hemp and, and pairing uh, or psych psychotropic. Now it's time to let the cat out of the bag. So we were the first ones to do hemp drive Delta 9 in a, in, by a long shot, by almost almost a year, by at least eight months. And we secured the first legal opinion, made the first gummy. And we actually had all of our retailers sign NDAs with us before we'd even pitch them the product. This is how early and novel it was at the time. And if you, anyone in this space that sells a brand, you know how difficult it is to pick up the phone and talk to retailers. Imagine saying, I've got a really cool product, but I need you to sign an NDA before I even tell you about it. So there was a grind involved for a long time. And then, you know, eventually a competitor found it on a shelf and said, what is this? And did some digging and they said, we can do this. Cause now everyone knows Delta 9, it's not rocket science. Once you get Delta 9, you get it. But at the time it was really hard for people to wrap their heads around. But the folks that did came out with products pretty quick. And we went from one competitor to five competitors to like 400 competitors in a six-month period. So it, it blew up big time. And uh, that was Trojan Horse Cannabis that we launched. It was the first Delta 9 edible in the space. Uh, that brain's still running. We still sell. Uh, we actually have live resin edibles now. And, and we're really focused on craft. We don't use any synthesized Delta 9. Everything we use is completely plant extracted. One, it gives us... A better legal foothold because a lot of states have banned conversions. So that's not us. And they go, well, you can't sell Delta 9. We don't have conversions. I'm like, well, we're not converted. And they go, oh, well, okay, you're fine then. So it allows us the flexibility. I think it's got regulatory protection long-term. There's some concerns in the farm bill about what's going to happen to conversions. And for our business, it doesn't impact us. 
but it's nice to just not sweat it. Like, oh, we don't use that stuff, so it's not a problem. Now, the reality is I think that the converted market is the majority of the market right now, and it's sustaining the hemp industry. And obviously, I hope nothing happens to it, but I am a proponent of increased SOPs, standards, consumer safety, guardrail. Anyway, so Trojan Horse launched. Boy, I'm really going a long way that aren't I? I apologize. Everything you're saying, though, I am tracking and I appreciate the thoroughness because I'll obviously let you finish. But it's, it's very helpful to understand the progression of how you entered the market and what you've observed along the way. Oh, right. Turning into what is what is the present market that we're currently operating in, right? So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So it was Trojan Horse, you know, edibles are selling, but edible gummies are gummies. Like no one's going to explode their business over gummies and perhaps, but it's not, it's not a, a huge market. And there's only so many folks that are going to eat edibles on a regular basis. You have some new entrants into the space, particularly seniors that are like, okay, well, I'm not going to smoke, but I'll try an edible. Right. But it still wasn't the, the normalization and the pickup that we were hoping for. So we, I read this book called The Power of Habit, which I'm sure you are at least familiar with, or a lot of your listeners in the B2B space are probably familiar with. And in short, it talks about how habits are almost a completely different part of our brain. And they were looking at people that had brain injuries that had no working short-term memory whatsoever, but they could still execute habits really well that they didn't realize they were even executing. And they talk about the business case study of Febreze and how they used habits to improve their business. And I started thinking, no one's going to stop drinking alcohol to become an edible consumer. Few people are going to stop drinking alcohol to be a smoker, but people will gladly just change the can in their hand and keep drinking. So we decided really early on when beverages were an abysmal percentage of uh, marijuana rec markets, we decided to jump in on the hemp side because we thought, hey, if people can have a better distribution option, more points of distribution than just dispensaries, we think this category will take off. So we ended up launching High Spirits Beverages. We were technically the second to market. Cycling Frog beat us by 60 days, and they're a great company. If you haven't tried Cycling Frog, they're great folks and make a great product. But we launched the second hemp drive buying beverage in the space almost two years ago now. And its beverages has been exploding the past year and a half in a huge way. And we, we can get into that later. Um, but so now High Spirits Beverages is what we put most of our focus on. Trojan Horse is still pumping along and growing, uh, but High Spirits Beverages is like the, oh, wow, this is game changing. Yeah, obviously, this is going to be a really juicy conversation because you just said a lot of buzz things that my listeners know that I speak about and I'm passionate about and like to, you know, bring to the table. And a couple of things that you highlighted. One, I really appreciate your awareness and just understanding. Again, I hopefully have come across to my listeners historically as someone who is very unbiased to the extent of let's talk about it. Let's have conversations because I just don't think the industry is anywhere final set sign sealed delivered. Right. And obviously we're, we're, you know, we rely on legislation at a federal level, at a state level. Those laws are changing all the time, but I really appreciated your highlight of Delta eight was not the right market for you, but obviously the impact that that had on the industry at large really shifted the hemp industry. And so again, I think these are conversations not to say Delta 8 is right or wrong, not to say hemp derived D9 synthesized or, you know, extracted pro or con. It's just these are things that are happening in the industry. And so how do we talk about it? And so again, with your experience and your like range of roles, I guess I am very familiar with hemp exchange, had 
I think in the back of my mind, as you're saying, I'm like, that's right. That was Chris. I do remember that. But obviously my first interaction with you was under Trojan horse because like you highlighted, your work was really public facing and disruptive and saying, hey, hemp industry, hemp market, you can now access Delta 9 THC quality trusted to your point. I agree. I think the industry has gotten a little unruly on the hemp side. And so that's where I try to focus my efforts when we are doing policy and legislative work. It's not to, in fact, our tagline, I'll pitch it, you know, for the Texas Hemp Coalition is regulate, don't eliminate. And so we're very much in favor of regulation, having better SOPs, you know, putting in place better standards, but don't remove these products from the market. And that's unfortunately what I think we're seeing happen on a state to state basis. You have every state kind of fighting. And I get it because they're putting a lot of infrastructure into these state programs. And like you highlighted, here's an opportunity where hemp really can be this federally accessible nationwide accessibility of people getting the products that they want. And the final point, I guess I'll kind of highlight before I follow up with a question is I loved your just, you know, understanding and awareness of thinking of the habits that people are going through and especially applying that to a cannabis consumer. I see beverages obviously very up and coming popular. I mean, to your point, very familiar with Cycling Frog, very familiar with High Spirits, your brand. And now you've just, you've seen the whole industry kind of crack open from a beverage perspective. And some of the conversations behind the scenes are, you know, well, are beverages ever going to really stack up to what you're seeing smokable products, for example, price point wise, uh, revenue wise in the industry, you know, match? And maybe the answer is no, but it's a different consumer and it's a different habit that you're trying to swap out for them, right? And so I've been very excited about beverages and have had a couple of really great beverage brands and beverage uh, pioneers and operators now, including obviously yourself, which yes, we've been trying to get you on the podcast for so long. And so, you know what? It happened now. And I think it's honestly really great timing. So I think where I would love to kind of, I guess, dive in a little bit more is really just understanding from the the hemp-derived Delta 9 space, because you were talking about yours is obviously not synthesized, not synthetic. I think those words are getting thrown around a lot in the industry. And what you are saying is kind of playing in my mind of another kind of double click, if you will, into it. I think when we're going into these legislative conversations with these lawmakers, they're just very quick to use big, all-encompassing words that, in my opinion, and probably your opinion, have more detriment than what they're actually intended to deal with. So in Texas, they're obviously using the word synthetic because they assume that that's the only way to get THC. And so they don't like that we have THC in Texas. That was obviously not the intent. And so now that we have it, they obviously want to get rid of it. And so it's a little comical when I see some of the language being used or the thought process around how they think they're dealing with a quote-unquote problem, do you realize your language doesn't even really affect what you're thinking it's going to affect? And so I would just love for you to talk a little bit about, I guess, your entry into that. I mean, obviously, I understand the less than 0.3% on a dry weight basis, you kind of had the aha, hey, the language says this, well, how can I just make a larger gummy, essentially, to carry that Delta 9? But you know, for again, the listeners who maybe haven't heard me belabor this conversation to death and certainly have not heard your perspective, 
Just what is your take on hemp-derived Delta-9 compared to traditional Delta-9 THC that you would find in a cannabis product? Do you mention for a recording that your home state is California? Obviously, California has a very robust adult use and medical program. And so just to contrast that, I'm curious how you view hemp-derived Delta-9, maybe it's a trick question because it's the same compound, but again, your perspective, like when you're having those conversations, you're kind of deducing, putting things together, you're coming to the realization, hey, we can use D9 hemp-derived as long as fill in the blank. How did you, how did you start to implement that? Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is it's the beauty and simplicity. Right. The, the law says very plainly up to 0.3% delta nine THC by dry weight, uh, is permitted. And that is now classified as, as hemp and not marijuana. And for, for the listeners here, to me, cannabis is the entire industry. Cannabis products are all products that are ultimately derived from cannabis. And, and usually when I say cannabis products, I'm talking about ingestibles, inhalables, the cannabinoid side of the business. Though, let's not forget that industrial hemp with grain and fiber, herds, seeds, this is a really important part of the market that is still the cannabis industry, though that's where I draw a line a little bit that that's a very different part of the industry than the rest. However, it's all cannabis to me. And a lot of people will say things like, well, what's the difference between the cannabis product and a hemp product? I'm like, well, they're both cannabis products. So do you mean marijuana product and hemp products? And I'll get pushback on, well, marijuana is a racist term. I'm like, that's a point we can discuss later. However, it's a legal term. And when we're yeah. talking legal, we need to be legally correct. And so if we're just talking about products, I say it's a cannabis product. And if we say, well, how did it get to the market? Oh, well, we use the head pathway or use the marijuana pathway. I also don't call it, a lot of people say, well, what about the regulated market? I'm like, oh, what, which regulated market? Are we talking about hemp in Minnesota? Are we talking about hemp in Utah? Are we talking about marijuana in California? Very different things, but they're all regulated markets. So I'm kind of a stickler for terminology. I do catch myself sometimes using terminology that other people understand. So I don't have to go into a definition and an explanation every time and be on a soapbox. I relate to Um, that. Yeah, I, but I try to, I try to, to stick firm to it. But yeah, the thought process was literally the definition very clear at 0.3%. So why don't we use what we can? It's just that simple. And it took a long time for people to wrap their heads around us because it was like, well, this feels wrong, like Mm -hmm. cool story, but it's not. And we almost came out with a slogan because math. And we almost made shirts that just said because math so people could understand it. Cause that was almost the, the aha moment for most folks. We go to a conference, they'd be like, I still don't understand how this is legal. And I'd explain it to them and they'd go, yeah, but I still don't get it. And I'd say, it's just math. You just have to do the math. And they'd go, okay, now, now I kind of get it. And you'd see that like moment click for them. They'd be like, oh, this is genius. And a lot of people still call it a loophole, which I take uh, offense to because it's like saying if the freeway speed is 65 miles per hour, if the speed limit on the freeway is 65 miles per hour and you do 64, is that a loophole just because everyone chooses to do 55? No, you're just, you're, you're taking the law to its fullest extent and uh, using your rights as a private citizen or a business owner to use that language to create products. And so that, that's what we do. We, we push boundaries as far as, you know, there's the status quo and we're not going to accept the status quo, but we, we choose to do that in a safe and calculated manner. So for example, we could talk about THCA flour. We have not jumped into and probably aren't going to jump into THCA flour. However, 
I could argue academically that it's a totally fine product, uh, legally speaking, and we can get way in the weeds on this. Um, but for us, we calculated it's just not the right channel for us to put our time into. I also think it's not going to make it post farm bill changes is my opinion. And we could talk about that as well. But, you know, we, we make calculated risks and we make calculated measures and we push boundaries. And I feel like we have a good target on our back already. In fact, in Canra's, Canra's lengthy, lengthy document they put together recently, we are the first cited reference as a problem in the industry. And we were named by name in Colorado when Colorado locked down retail sales by hemp. We were named by name by the lobbyists right off the bat as the epitome of a company that needs to be put out of business. So we're, we're scrutinized pretty heavily. And thankfully, you know, the 0.3% are really, it's carved in there pretty hard. So it's hard to really, if you try to lower below 0.3%, you can't farm anymore. It just shuts the industry down, in which case the industry goes away. It doesn't matter what I'm selling. I won't be able to operate. So I feel comfortable with it. We felt comfortable with it from day one. And now that we're moving into beverages, even more excited about that. But yeah, the thought process was I'm passionate about cannabis and I'm passionate about people's access to cannabis. I'm passionate that it never should have been prohibited in the first place. And I find a lot of pushback of, well, that's not the intent. I'm like, oh, so you support the original intent of prohibition, which was racist in nature. That's the intent you support instead of what are we talking about here? The, the government accidentally legalized something and you're not going to take it because you want to be nice to what the government says. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm, I'm very passionate about consumer access, also consumer safety. We could talk probably a whole nother podcast on consumer safety guardrails. I love the, the statement, you know, pro uh, regulation, not prohibition, right? Regulate, don't restrict. Is that what you said? Regulate, don't eliminate. Regulate, don't eliminate. It rhymes. I like it. Yeah, and I totally agree. And so I'm, I didn't mention this before, but I'm the co-chair of policy at NIHC, co-chair of policy at Cannabis Beverages Association, co-chair of policy at Hemp Beverage Alliance, and a board member or director rather of on Colorado Hemp Association. And I interface with probably five other trade associations on a regular basis on top of that. So I'm intimately involved in both federal and state things and, and, and very, very busy. And we always talk about, at least I always push, we don't want to prohibit things unless they're Correct. blatantly unsafe, but we do want to create safe guardrails to make sure consumers Correct. are getting safe products that are advertised properly. Things like, I don't support someone saying this is Delta 11 live resin. No, it's not. You may have a new product that's live resin-esque and you may use, you may have developed a new process to make a very comparable product, but it's not really live resin because that's super niche and specific to the SOP, which you can't get Delta 11 out of live resin. Right. And also things like, um, I don't, I don't like using the term sativa and indica because it doesn't really dictate the effects in any way, shape or form. Most people don't understand that. So to thread the needle between creating a marketing message that rings true with our consumers, but also truth in advertising. In our products that have terpenes in it, we say sativa terpene infused. So it's kind of more accurate. The terpene profile makes a sativa or indica. Right, even versus the actual product. Yes, yes. So we try our best to, to stick with truth in advertising. We like to push that on a regulatory space. And uh, it's really important to me that consumers know what they're getting uh, so they can make informed decisions. Before I got into cannabis, I was hardcore libertarian. I was like, we don't need regulations. If you make a bad product, people will stop buying it. Cannabis has showed me that that's not true. If you make a bad product that is damaging to someone's health long-term, 
they're not going to know it or recognize that the product is causing the problem. And therefore, they're not going to vote with their dollars in that space. And so we really do need safety regulations from preventing people from doing really bad things. This is even true in the marijuana markets. Look at the, the THC inflation problem. Look at the bait and switch problem where they get moldy products and they send a different product in instead to get full panels. They sign it off, they switch tags, and they send out a bunch of moldy products. And we're getting a lot of recalls because of it, because it's happening so often. People will say the recalls show that the safety is working. That's almost true. And there's some truth to that statement. But the fact that there's so many moldy product recalls in a short window indicates that the safety processes that need to be in place before it gets to market are not sufficient. And so on both sides of the cannabis legal framework, we yes. need better regulations for consumer sake. And to, to say that any one industry is doing a better job than the other, I think is just a false statement that just is inherently trying to divide. And I'm a cannabis together guy. It's all cannabis. Let's work together. So I want to retweet that whole statement. Everything you just said, I relate to so much because I think that is the conversation that I've been kind of having unbeknownst to me again, I think before we started recording and certainly the sentiment from my listeners perspective, I'm just listening to the type of conversations that I try to curate and have on the podcast are selfishly topics that I find really interesting and that I find are really important to be having in the cannabis industry. And it's so unfortunate when you start seeing this separation and this inbreed fighting happening right and wrong. And you just highlighted it. Like, thank you. I couldn't have said it better. It's there are problems on both sides. Absolutely. There is bad operators in the hemp space putting out products for Lord knows how long, what combination, how they got there. I keep seeing random cannabinoid strings glued together in a, you know, cartridge. And it's what are you inhaling? That is not yeah. something that I stand behind. But then exactly what you're highlighting from a marijuana perspective, too. There's so much happening on that side from just even testing in general and manipulating those tests and and just the illicit side of things. There's obviously legacy operators who I totally get why they're still operating legacy and from a taxation perspective. But we are all supposed to be in this fight together and yes. wanting to work towards progress, ultimately for safe consumer access. I always wow. talk about that. We are in the consumer packaged goods space. It is cannabis packaged goods. And so the consumer comes first. And so it's, again, from my perspective, why are we arguing about chemistry or why are we arguing about mass? Let's argue about good SOPs, good quality, yes. Sourcing, yes. supply chain, understanding education, semantics, like you said, oh my God, if I could just correct people all day long on the right words to use. In fact, I did a post on why the word marijuana is used. Again, I'm not saying that it doesn't have a historical past for bad, for worse, whatever the case may be, but it is the term that is written into law. Yeah, <laughs> It's exactly. the language that you are using. And so I think all those things swirled together are really, again, putting us in a position right now, especially with the Farm Bill coming up for amendment, especially with the momentum that hemp has had, especially seeing where hemp-derived Delta 9 has gone. It's just, wow. And so the follow-up kind of question to you. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here. And I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, 
body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp-derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. And so the follow-up kind of question to you, a little bit to rewind. One, you mentioned in your intro, you were the first to get a legal letter kind of affirming what the hemp-derived Delta 9 I don't know if it was the pathway or just the legality of understanding it per the farm bill, per the legislation, but I've certainly seen some legal letters come up in the industry over the past couple of, you know, years, just as we've introduced different products into the marketplace that are, I guess, you know, I wouldn't say contesting, but certainly challenging, right, what that language is. And so I think it's important for people to understand you are putting your neck out there. And just like you highlighted as well, you have a lot of people who are looking at what you're doing. They are trying to throw sticks and stones. They're obviously trying to impact legislation. I mean, just being in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, we were meeting with the House and the Senate Ag Committees, who are the authors of the Farm Bill. And they told us just that day that we were one of 10 cannabis-related organizations that they were meeting with on behalf of the Farm Bill. I can imagine they're not all in the same boat as us saying, hey, Let's regulate. Don't eliminate. Let's talk about this. What language are you using? Who's going to regulate what? How do we help put pressure on the FDA to do their job? I imagine it was a lot of people who were like, F those, you know, Trojan horse people and those restart people and F those people in, you know, Texas and and all those other, you know, non-adult use states. And to me, that is part of a challenge that we have to overcome. And again, part of how I help overcome that is just having these conversations because to me, I'm just a small potato. I'm just a little gal in Austin, Texas, who grew up smoking pot, listening to Willie Nelson, found myself in the industry, and here I am, and I feel very much called to use my voice in the best way I can. And so the best way I can is to get on a podcast and bring way smarter people like yourself into the arena to have these conversations, to shine a light on it. But the question really is, you know, what is it like? How do you handle it? What is that experience from a brand perspective of conversations that you're going into to decide... Obviously, there's some legal conversation and there's some strategy and discretion. So I want to honor that because it is an industry where, you know, you want to be the first mover. But like you said, you also want to tread with caution because we don't really know. I remember having Rod Kite on the podcast a couple months ago talking about THCA and his sentiment was very much, you know, 
it's legal this way, but nobody's been made the example yet. And so we don't know what the penalty or how they would handle it. And so given that very uncomfortable window (laughs) that you're in, that a lot of us are also in and just watching from an industry, you know, what, what are some of the processes that you're going through to ultimately decide, you know, yes, let's trudge into the unknown and be the leader and hope you're making the next best decision. And it's not going to, you know, like you even highlighted, you're not getting into THCA. You didn't want to get into Delta A, but you're in Delta 9, you're in beverages. There's certainly some bigger trends that you are, you know, deciding where to invest in. But really at the the point of it is you're, you're very brave for stepping into that position and, and really helping pave the way for a lot of other operators like ourselves, as well as ultimately consumers to get access to these products in a way and in a means that they just couldn't have otherwise. So I'm just curious, how, what, how do you wake up and decide, yes, I would like to go against the industry and, and government to some extent and speak my peace and truth? Well, great question. So like you, I grew up just smoking pot. And I think when you're when you're a teenager or, you know, I, I don't advocate teenage consumption, but um, I'm also not naive to pretend that like teenagers don't smoke weed. Um, right. and, and I'm not going to lie about my past, um, but I was smoking weed since 14. And it gives you this, especially at my age, I grew up on, you know, under the D.A.R.E. campaigns really heavily. And they made it sound like if you smoke weed, you're going to die tomorrow. Like it was this horrible thing. And I got peer pressured into it. And I was like, well, that was fantastic. And I didn't die. So maybe this whole thing is a lie. And it's actually not that bad. And the more you get into being a cannabis consumer, the more you realize this is actually a good product that has a ton of medicinal value. It's got lots of mental health value. Got It's a social lubricant. It brings people together. It's got a great culture and community. And you kind of realize right off the bat that the government is intentionally lying about how bad cannabis is. And to leave it on schedule one is just nonsensical. And they're and they double down on it. And you start to realize there's there's bigger things at play here than common sense. And so, you know, when I wake up in the morning and say, I'm gonna do something that the government's not gonna like, I think it stems from that initial a libertarian self-protection. Hey, I've got rights and I'm not going to just take whatever you tell me, but I also don't want to go to jail. So I do calculated pushbacks. Like what, what can I push back that has legal standing that I can actually feel good ethically? Like I'm not going to go out and sell uh, marijuana on the black market or the legacy market today. Why? Cause I've got a family and kids and I'm hopeful I profile. I'm not faulting anyone that does. And like you said, I totally understand why there's still a legacy market. And I've got lots to say about that too. But we're, I like to take calculated risks that really aren't that risky to begin with, at least not in a significant, personally damaging lifetime sort of way. But in order to be in the space, you know, you said it earlier, and I don't, I think it was before the, before we hit record, but we're all in a gray area, right? And so how gray do you want to get? And I like walking right up to a line before it crosses into black generally, but I I stay maybe 10 feet off of that line and feel good about it. A lot of people on our space just tread right over that line and, and that I don't generally support, but I don't, I will say I don't support in me taking those same actions. Um, but I always start with consumer safety first. If it's not safe for the consumer, I don't care if it's legal or not. So consumer safety first. Second is is there a legitimate academic legal argument and basis? This were to go to court, if I'm sitting in court 
and and there's a jury and I'm I'm trying to explain or my lawyer's trying to explain to the jury why what I did was considered legal and where my head was at the time. If there's no solid basis for that, then it's a no go for me. It's I'm I'm happy playing in gray area, but it needs to be gray with backing. And it needs to be gray with common sense and and clear interpretations of law. And I'm, it's really important to me that I don't cross right over that line because I do like to work with regulators and uh, legislators for the betterment of the industry. And if I'm just dumping all over the place on these rules, then I have no credibility. So I'm trying to balance pushing the envelope with maintaining credibility and the ethical stance, both for consumers, for my company, and for progress on the legislative side. As I mentioned, very active. I, I'm probably going to be in D.C. doing a similar fly-in in a couple of weeks which I'm very excited about. And through one of the trade associations, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say, so I'll be kind of vague, but through a trade association that I'm part of, we've been asked by House Ag to draft regulations that they're very excited about. And then we had an opportunity with USDA to say, here's what we're thinking of submitting. What do you think? And they were like, we would love it if you did this. So we've got USDA backing. And so I'm part of these bigger conversations about where it's going federally um, and I'm always thinking, how do we protect the consumer, but how do we let business succeed? And then to kind of add a cherry on top of that, the, the reason I think the legacy market still exists is because the taxation is so ridiculous in the space that there's no benefit for the leg. The risk of getting caught and getting a fine right. is cheaper than operating in the white. It just, the, 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 in the free and clear and it's painful. And I keep saying the only way we're going to get rid of the legacy market and simultaneously, the only way we'll ever have true social equity is to make the barrier to enter the space so low that it doesn't make sense to risk the fine or penalty and keep taxation and SOPs just the minimum necessary for consumer safety. Nothing more than that. Consumers need to be safe. Businesses need to be ethical. Beyond that, stop it. And if we can do that, the legacy market will disappear because why would you ever face jail time or a fine if it's just as easy to, to submit and get your permit and license and then sell it on in your e-commerce store, right? If you could just grow weed, have it safety chest tested, but then put it up on an e-commerce site, why would you ever keep it underground? And I don't think regulators get this. They think, let's make a pathway and then let's penalize the shit out of the legacy market. Well, that's not new. The legacy market has been uh, under fear of massive penalties, even worse penalties in the past than now, and it didn't stop them. That's not going to stop them now. You can't, you can't get them with a stick. You got to get them with a carrot, and regulators don't quite get that. And even worse, the longer we go with these mature markets, the more they depend on that grossly overestimated or overinflated tax revenue, and they like it. And so the regulators start jockeying to protect their own revenue channel. And regulators should never be in a position to pick winners in industry or try to fight to protect a revenue stream. But that's exactly what's happening. And we can see it with the amount of fraud that's going on. I mean, how many directors of a cannabis control board have been either sued or in jail or have at least lost their position because of shady tactics? It's the whole system is broken. We basically have, and this is going to be a really inflammatory statement. We borderline have state-run cartels protecting industry as long as they get their cut because you said we're operating in a gray area and i think originally you meant hemp but the reality is marijuana is too it's still a schedule one product all of it all of it right? i think that's all the reality gray. of it it's just nothing is 
final yet. And it's kind of leading me up to maybe a hot take question, but a thought I wanted to like kind of wrap up what you were saying with though is I relate to what you were sharing because I view just because the law is there, if you don't push the boundary of that law, then will it ever change? And so it's this very interesting, you know, you, you have an opportunity to be either proactive or reactive. And so yeah. I decided I wanted to take a stance of proactivity. I did not want to be the recipient of regulation or legislation changing. I'm not as bold as you to be like, hey, I am interpreting less than 0.3. Let's make a larger gummy. And this is that. I very much saw your brand and and some others that were at the time promoting hemp D9. I thought, that's fucking crazy. I don't uh-huh. believe it. But uh-huh. obviously education. And, and again, I'll be the first to say, teach me something. I'll, I'm, you know, I'm a sponge. You have to be a sponge in this industry. Again, because the point is everything is still so new. But the maybe hot take question is, what is your opinion on where things are going? Like where, 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 what is the perfect scenario or what would you like to happen of, of what the industry looks like? Because obviously the, and I'm, I'm saying words that maybe are not the right correctness, but hopefully it makes sense. You know, so you have the adult use and medical markets in states like California, Colorado. You have the hemp markets in Texas. Maybe a baby medical marijuana market if you're really being, you know, specific about that here. But those all have to get reconciled. So my opinion a little bit because of the podcast has been watching and paying attention to these infrastructures being built within a state. And those states, you know, kind of going off of the comment you made, they want to protect that infrastructure. And then here comes hemp. And so all these people who are pro-federal legalization, it's not that I'm not pro-federal legalization. I just don't know what legalization means. Is legalization mean only 100 licenses for the whole United States? Does federal legalization mean that it's vertically integrated required? Does federal legalization mean to your, you know, suggestion of, hey, you Mr. Jones guy or Mrs. You know, Betty gal, you want to grow in your home and you want to make a website and you want to sell people direct to consumer on your on your e-commerce? Like, what does legalization mean? And I think as an industry, we've just globbed it all together being like, we demand to be accepted. And I'm okay with that. I, I am on that same, you know, rallying cry, but I just want, I have so many more questions of where are we going to end up? Where is this going to go? And so I just want to hear from you considering, you know, you're obviously going in DC. You're a part of all these different trade organizations. Like you said, you're very passionately, um, at the front line trying to have these conversations, but. Where is it going to the people who I'm sure come up to you and they're like, Chris, does that mean we're getting federal legalization, you know, with the next president? It's I don't know if that's how that works or if hemp became federally, I guess it is federally legal. But what I'm trying to say is like with this hemp derived Delta nine kind of opening up that side of the market, you're now seeing the effects that is having on the quote unquote, you know, adult use medical marijuana markets. And so how does that get reconciled? So I'm just really curious Given what you know and where you're playing in the space, what is kind of the future of cannabis? Maybe it's in the next five years. Is it the next, you know, 10, 15 years? What are we working towards and what is it going to look like from your perspective? That's a, I could go hours. I know a loaded question. Uh, Yeah. So I would say the further away you get from today, the easier it is to foresee. Right. Are we going to get interstate commerce? Are people going to be able to have, you know, cannabis brands in California selling marijuana? Are are, our drinks going to be sold in dispensers? They're going to be sold in grocery stores. Like, where do you reconcile THC 
Who regulates it? Who's going to have access to grow it? Who's going to have access to sell it? Are you going to have separation between the, I know you're not specifically in the synthesized side, but let's talk about, you know, like an isolated cannabinoid versus an extraction. I just, I think there's so many nuances to how this gets dealt with that again, when people are like, oh, legalization, I'm like, well, legalization of what and for who and how and what are those products and what are the limits on THC and who's regulating it and what is the license going to be and how do you distribute that? And So I think consolidation between hemp and marijuana is inevitable. We're not going to look back in 10 years and still have a hemp market and a marijuana market. It's just not going to exist. It doesn't make sense for it to exist. Federal regulators, once they finally get their hands on this properly, they're not going to allow it to continue to exist. It doesn't make sense. It's too difficult to manage. And there's frankly, it's it's a bunch of overlapping regulation, which costs a bunch of money for everyone for no good reason if it's legalized. It makes sense to consolidate it. But so what I'm pushing for is a safe consolidation. We need to not let monopolies own the entire cannabis market and run their own show and just say, screw you, medium to small size businesses. I need what I would like to see is consolidation that protects small businesses' ability to participate. And it protects uh, home growers' rights to home grow. It protects uh, the consumer knowing they're getting safe product whenever they purchase uh, and has no further taxation than what alcohol is taxed at today. Um, I have no problem with some excise tax or use tax on these things. I think it's required to fund the beast, if you will. Um, but it needs to be reasonable. And I think alcohol's found a good balance of this. And so in that regard... I think TTB should actually be the one to handle cannabis, not FDA. Now, there's there's this this approach that's being taken right now, which I support if it works, which is to put hemp products, all of them, without limitation, on the 1994 Deshay list. So in other words, pre-Deshay, pre-approved, this is now a dietary supplement and operated as such. That'll get us a long way into having consumer safety without over-regulation. I don't think it's going to happen though, just personally. I think it's, I think it's a, a hopeful shot, but I can't imagine THC going on a dietary supplement list and then just being a free for all. And I think that's why FDA hasn't touched it yet. Well, it's one of many reasons FDA hasn't touched it yet, but I do think that it needs to be a light lift. I think if you ask anyone that's in alcohol, say, what do you think about the TTB? They're all like, we love the TTB. Why? Cause the TTB isn't hell bent on penalizing you for trying to get people drunk. They understand. That's literally what we do. We get people drunk. Now, how do we do it in a safe manner? And they're not concerned other than over-intoxication where people get sick or get in a car accident, those sorts of things. They're not concerned about someone getting drunk at a bar and then taxiing home. They don't care. Right now, the FDA would be very much caring if people are getting high and doing things, and they don't want people to get high. Um, they, they're the self-imposed buzz police, if you will, and they think that being high is inherently unsafe. Where TTB is like, being drunk isn't unsafe. Doing things while you're drunk you shouldn't be doing is unsafe. And we should look at this the same way. So I personally would like to see it under TTB. I think our milligram caps, you know, again, in a world where it's combined, where it's just cannabis altogether, I think the milligram caps need significant overhaul. The reality is 10 milligrams is not enough for most folks that are hardcore, not even hardcore. Daily cannabis consumers often need more than 10 milligrams to even have it be felt. So saying you can only put 100 milligrams per container and it's got to be in 10 milligram servings is ridiculous. I think that we should have dispensaries as they exist today should be for ultra high milligram products, more than 10 milligrams per serving, more than 100 milligrams per container, 
because you don't want the uninitiated picking it up at 7-Eleven and getting too high too fast and getting sick. They're not going to die, but they could have a really bad time and you don't want them to have a really bad time. And so I think these specialty stores, they do exist that are basically what dispensaries are today, where the connoisseur goes, the, the, the activists, the hobbyists. This is where people go to congregate and purchase products that fit their lifestyle. But I think a 10 milligram serving, you should just be able to pick that up on your way home at the gas station if it's properly regulated and we know it's safe. I'm not supporting gas station products per se, but you should be able to purchase there just like you could pick up a 12 pack of Coors Light on the way home. I think beverages are actually going to be the majority of the market by revenue in five years, maybe 10. And the reason I think that is because if you take the pure U.S. population, every single person that's above the age of 21 in the, in the country right now, how many of them will be willing to drink cannabis versus smoke cannabis? And I think that number is much larger on the drink side. So I think beverages will be standard. I think you'll go into a bar, restaurant, anywhere in the country and you'll find beverages. I think you'll be able to pick up edibles and even flour in most locations. It would make sense somewhere. If you could buy alcohol, you could probably buy cannabis there. And then I think dispensaries will move into a space where it's higher milligram, more craft, more connoisseur. If you're serious about cannabis, you go to a dispensary, but you pick up your daily stuff often on the way home from work. And I think that's the only way it's going to work long-term for everyone. It'll make businesses happy. It'll make consumers happy. And it's the most... uh it's it's the it's the best way to have the market be unrestricted. It allows innovation, it allows growth, and it allows point of distribution that we really need in, in the in the space. No one, even me, who likes high milligram stuff from time to time, I don't like going into a dispensary. I don't want to wait outside behind a metal door, show my ID through the glass, be wait to be buzzed in by the security guard, come in, show my ID again have one bud tender that has to walk me through the process. And then as soon as we're done, I get kicked out. They've got to show the ID to the camera another time. I feel like I'm doing something illegal just being there. And this is not conducive. No, imagine if this was grocery stores. Like you go to the grocery store and let me see your ID. We've already got 10 people in there. We got to wait. This would never work for any other industry. It wouldn't work to buy an iPhone. It wouldn't work to buy food. It wouldn't even work to buy alcohol. And somehow we think that this is the best methodology for selling cannabis. And I just, it's, it's fear mongering that is, it's a compromise between the fear mongers and the rest of us that know there's nothing to be afraid of. And that's going to dissipate with time. And unfortunately, the marijuana lobbyists right now want to protect their investment into dispensaries. So they're adamant that dispensaries are the only safe way. So for the first time in history, which 16 year old me would have never imagined, we have to fight cannabis companies for cannabis protection. And it, it doesn't even make sense to say it out loud, but like, Cannabis lobbyists try to make prohibitions against cannabis all the time. And it's because those folks aren't cannabis people. They're, they're people that see it as a revenue channel and that's it. And they're playing the revenue channel game and they want to choke out the competition and they're not part of the culture. They're not part of the community. They're not activists. Most of the rest of the businesses on marijuana or hemp are somewhat cannabis activists by nature. They're passionate about it. They want to make it work. And they want access to consumers. They don't want to stranglehold the industry. So where it's going, I think the, the long-term future is a consolidated market with, with consumer safety baked in, a light regulatory lift that works for everyone. How we get there is a little bit of a fuzzy. It's, it's fuzzier. And the closer you get to what's the next three months going to hold, well, that's pretty clear because I don't think we're going to get a farm bill for the next three months. Yeah. What's six months to nine months old? 
I think the farm bill is going to do nothing significantly damaging to the hemp space. I do worry about conversions and where that's going to end up because there's a lot of push to get rid of them completely, which I think ultimately is the wrong way to do it. I think we just need safety regulations around them. Beyond that, I think it's going to be until we get a comprehensive bill that is bipartisan and we have a functioning federal government, which we don't have right now. And we don't even have a, a house speaker. We literally can't bring up bills in the house right now, which is I can't even fathom how we can make any progress until this is resolved because we can't. So until we have a functioning government again, and we have leadership at that functioning government that is generally not afraid of cannabis, they they don't think it's heroin, they think it's cannabis. We're not going to see legalization uh, until we get those things. And I think legalization is synonymous with consolidation for me because I don't see a world where marijuana goes legal, but hemp is still excluded. Because once it's off the controlled substance list, now there's a definition from hemp and a definition for marijuana. Neither are controlled substances. Even if it didn't consolidate, why would you participate in one versus the other if they're the same rules, which they likely would be? So I think it's going to be consolidated and uh, we can finally get out of this mess. And we'll all look back to these crazy wild days as, wow, I, none of us slept for seven years at least, but we happened. So no, I couldn't agree more with your you know, perspective of just the consolidation is imminent and how it gets dealt with and at what timeline I think are obviously the, you know, steps that we need to take in the interim. With that said, obviously the politics side of it, people just don't fully realize. I mean, even just coming out of Texas's legislative session, people are like, are we going to get a special session for cannabis, for hemp? And I'm thinking, are you fucking stupid? Do you think that the state of Texas wants to spend extra time on this topic? extrapolate that out federally and obviously there's so many other important issues as well as just the current state or i should say of lack of leadership right and so those are all things that are folding into yeah what is the actual timeline what is reality and i think that's the point that i try to make always with my listeners is i want to live in reality (laughs) i want to have these conversations so that we can be prepared because I think that as much as we want to think we know where things are going to end up and that's speaking for everyone in the industry, which is, I just want to be able to go buy my weed. I just want to be able to go buy my pot. I want to be able to go buy my edibles, my products, whatever it is in the best, you know, manner, means that are comfortable for me. And yeah, when you start to pick apart the current infrastructure or why we believe certain things that we believe, I remember even early days, we launched our CBD brand selling isolate. And we got a lot of early pushback because people were like, well, full spectrum is the only thing that works. And then very quickly, Epidiolex came out. And it's well, obviously isolating cannabinoids is effective if it's going to be yeah. an FDA approved drug. And now you're seeing that same conversation kind of mimic, especially from a hemp derived space. It's well, hemp derived Delta 9 isn't the same as, you know, marijuana derived Delta 9. And I'm thinking, do you eat gummies that are made with distillate? What's an isolated cannabinoid? Tell me the difference between hemp and marijuana if it's a single cannabinoid. Now, if you're talking about live resin, you're talking about adding another cannabinoid. Completely understand the argument, but all those things and everything you highlighted are all components that have to get reconciled. And again, the only way I believe that we're going to be able to reconcile that is, one, to have these conversations within the industry. So thank you for speaking so openly and transparently because 
It is a constantly moving target. I feel like there is always something that we have to be mindful of and things can change overnight for better or for worse. And the hardest part is when I see the internal struggle and pushback between people in the industry. And ultimately, I understand what it's fueled by. We are mostly for you know all intents and purpose, a lot of small independent operators and we have put our blood, sweat and tears into being in this industry. And it sucks to think that that could be threatened. But what I hope doesn't happen, which you've highlighted multiple times throughout this conversation, is just the reconciliation and the consolidation and who's driving what and where's the money going and what will be left once that happens. And so as much as there's fighting between, you know, the the small business to business operators, there is a bigger game that's happening. So it is interesting that you prefer that the TTB is who would perhaps regulate cannabis. I think... um it's just, it's just interesting to me when you have some of these bigger industries, alcohol, tobacco, pharmaceuticals, they've all got their eyes on our industry. And I think that's a really, you know, fair concern to be considerate of as well of, of, you know, yes, well, who is going to regulate it? And then where will we get shuffled into the scheme of things? And what will that have on long term implications for operators, industry, et cetera? But you highlighted something that I want to reiterate from a previous podcast I had with Diana Eberlein from Source and also from Cannabis beverage association. She was also articulating. And so it's just a couple of conversations I've heard where people are saying, you know, high dose. Absolutely. You're going to see more like a liquor store, convenience store model. You're going to go to your dispensary store and you're going to get your high products, high THC products. And then you're going to have your lower dose products or your minor non-psychoactive cannabinoids. And then those are going to be a little bit more freely accessible to consumers. And so that is a very exciting dream to you know, work towards because obviously we know that you can get hemp derived now. We've obviously talked about it, not at nauseum. I feel like we honestly can go on for three or four more hours talking about these topics more in detail, but it is, you know, it's out there in the market. I often talk about the cats out of the bag, so you don't want to just take it away. But yes, how do we then regulate it? How do we put good parameters and boundaries around it and reward the good operators and take care of the bad operators? Because it is really sad to see the implications. And, and certainly my inbox is a rotating door of people pitching me products and pitching me, you know, different cannabinoids and concentrations and this, that, and the other. And so it's it's hard. And I can see where the naysayers, both in our industry and outside of our industry, are looking at us with a big WTF on their forehead. It's, look, I get it. But we're not all in that same boat. And so how do we, again, meet in the middle and have conversations and hold ourselves and hold the industry accountable? So we're, we're almost at time, but I do want to kind of ask a couple follow-up questions. You've yeah. obviously talked about beverages a little bit, and I wish we could have talked about more specifically with your beverage. Maybe we'll have to have you back on. Um, your team did send me some store in my fridge and beautiful packaging and very delicious <laughs> flavors and super effective. Um, so I just want to give you kudos to that because I know you've worked oh, really hard you. to bring a quality product to market. But kind of in that vein, again, I'm very mindful of using the word trends because I don't think that beverages are a trend. I think it's here to stay. Like you said, people are drinking alcohol. They're curious to be can curious. They're also looking for non-alcoholic options. And so you're just seeing a whole wave of canned beverages and beverages pop up in the marketplace in your grocery stores and your local convenience stores, et cetera. But in that vein, similar to kind of how you, you know, were early to be uh, aware of hemp drive Delta 9, Delta 8, you know, kind of being a similar trend beverages now. Beverages aside, or maybe beverages, kind of like, what does the future look like for you, Chris? What are you excited to see aside from dealing with 
legislation and regulation, which we know needs to be dealt with in order to give us full confidence into, you know, the next unknown. But like I mentioned, I think there's other cannabinoids that are kind of, you know, hitting the market, but I haven't seen anything quite as buzzy as hemp D9, but that's because it's the most superior THC cannabinoid. So just with all your experience and all the work that you're doing, both for your brand and just for the industry and ultimately looking out for consumers, what are you seeing as, you know, the next thing that we need to be paying attention to as an industry? You know, that's a good question. I think the, we'll say the more exotic converted cannabinoids are probably just going to lose market share and they're going to, and they already are, and they're going to continue to lose market share. And I've said this from day one, why use Delta eight when Delta nine is an option? And some folks will say, well, it's, it's a lighter lift. It's it's a smoother high for those that are uninitiated. And I'm like, right, but that's what CBD is for. It seems as a community, we've forgotten how CBD and THC work together. And you can create a similar effect profile on, mm-hmm. on a consumer using Delta 9 and CBD that that basically mimics what Delta 9 feels like without the conversion process. And as we free the plant, we'll see more and more ratioed flowers coming out. I think type 2 Maybe I should talk about this. You probably know what I'm talking about, but maybe the audience doesn't. Yeah, please. So in, in cannabis chemotyping, which is chemotyping is identifying a type of plant based on its chemical compound profile, what it produces. So type one cannabis is high THC, little to no CBD. That's mostly what you find in dispensaries today. Type three cannabis is high CBD, little to no THC, generally speaking. And that's mostly what comprises of the hemp market. Type two is both THC and CBD and whatever ratio that genetic decides to create it in. But it's it's both metabolic pathways are firing, so you're going to get some ratio. We often see this in like a one-to-one flower, but it could be a 10-to-1 or a 1-to-10 or kind of anything in between. I think type 2 is going to explode once people wrap their hands around it and realize, oh, if I smoke a 10-to-1 CBD to THC or a 1-to-10 the other way around, they're very different effects. And I can gauge what effect I'm going after based on the event I'm going to or what my day looks like. And I think we're going to get a wider variety of ratios that matter to people. And I just don't think it's on people's radar right now. They don't understand. They're still so stuck in, well, is it sativa or indica? I'm like, how about the minor profiles? Does it have CBC in it? You know, these sorts of things that matter for the effects that they're just off people's radar. I think the education will slowly pick up as we're racing to create products that meet an effect instead of a number, right? THC is the number right now everyone cares about. How many milligrams, what percentage? Eventually, we're going to get to a point where people stop caring about that because it's normalized. Like you can get any milligram and any percentage you want. What else is there to care about? Oh, all of it, all of the rest of the things that are super important. So once the hype of high THC kind of moves on and matures, I think we'll see a big push into type two in ratioed products. Trojan horse was built on the type two concept. Our first products were 15 to one. Now we have 10 to ones. And we also now just have straight up live resin at plus D9. But we've always thought ratios were really important. And I think we were just too early. People didn't quite get it and they still don't. So where it's going, I think type two is going to be huge. I think beverage is going to be huge. And I think we're going to see more and more folks embracing this as normal. You know, coming out of Utah, you talk about cannabis and half the people look at you like you're a heroin dealer. In Colorado, which that's had normalization for much longer, if I drop off my kids for a, for a overnight with their friends and I'm wearing my Trojan Horse cannabis shirt, it's almost always met with, oh, sweet, is that a new dispensary? And I'm like, no, it's my business. Oh my God, I love edibles. Tell me all about it. 
And it's just a very different thing. And it's yeah. because it's normalized. And you can look at Minnesota. This is, I love this example. A year and a half ago, two years ago in Minnesota, cannabis was still very taboo in a general population sense. When they had this law change effective August 1st of last year, it wasn't three months before it was borderline normalized. You'd walk into a bar and there were products there. There were gummies on the wall. There were THC drinks available. And what's really interesting about that is those products were available before August 1st in higher milligram dosage, but no one knew. It didn't click. And when they formally regulated it properly, news picked it up as Minnesota just legalized THC, which right. isn't accurate, but it's the story that caught on. And people went, wait, what? I can buy what? Where? And suddenly the entire state knew about it. Everyone came out of the woodworks and was brave to say, I can buy this at a bar. I'm going to do it. And I don't care what my buddy thinks that's sitting here next to me. And his buddy, the buddy was like, oh, I also like THC drinks. And it started the conversation. And now it's just normal. Everyone talks about it. Everyone knows about it. There's no complication. And it's only a year. We're not even, or we are, we're a year out now. I, I think when we get consolidated and normalized, I think it'll look a lot like how Minnesota feels right now, where it's just part of your everyday conversation. It's not a big deal anymore. So I would watch out for, for type two. I would be leery of betting the entire farm on conversions right now. I do think conversions will make it long-term though. And here's why. As hard as the marijuana lobbyists fight against converted products, I always ask them this. Where do you get your THCB and your CBN from? I always should, ask where they get their CBN from. I yeah, the same thing. Should, should we ban conversions in the marijuana channel? Well, hold on now. Okay, so conversions aren't inherently bad and you're even converting a cannabinoid. So what's the difference here? Yep. How come your CBN is safe, but this Delta 8 is dangerous? Thank you. We need to, we need to talk about those things and and talk about, well, our SOPs exist. You don't have SOPs for conversions and marijuana, so don't pretend you do. So it's, you know, it's these whole things, right? It's, it's false arguments. It's, it's false dichotomies. These are all going to go away and it's going to be normalized. People will eventually learn the truth. And the reality is marijuana isn't going to want synthetics or, or conversions or isomers to go away because they use them all the time. And in fact, a lot of people that know this, but when the Utah medical market first opened up, like well over, I'm, I'm pulling this number anecdotally, but somewhere around 80% of the products were made from converted Delta 9. Because what happens when you launch a new program? Cool, the program's up. Now we're going to get our weed from. Yeah. Oh, we haven't grown any yet. Oh, that's going to yep. take an entire cycle. Plus it needs to be harvested. Then it needs to be extracted. So we need a business to start up that does extraction. Then we need manufacturers to start up to actually buy distillate and make products. Then all the licensing has to take place. It could be a year to two years before a program gets up and running. And Utah did not do a great job with handling their licensing structure. They did the whole, oh, I'm going to do favors for people and gave a bunch of licenses to people that didn't even grow. So they started out with eight licenses and I think five of them grew nothing the first year. So they were like, we have a major lack of supply. What are we going to do? Let's allow the importation of CBD isolate into the space so they can do conversions and sell edibles at least. And that's exactly what happened. So the irony here is we have marijuana folks being like, I buy the real shit at the dispensary. I'm like, mm, you're buying the exact same thing, but paying more for it. So good on you, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's it's a wild space. And, and I could talk about this all day long, but I feel like I've been talking for a while. So I'll turn it over. No, Chris, everything you're saying is very much in line with, again, not that I want to say what we're saying is 
explicit truth. I don't believe that, but I think that yeah. these are conversations that are real to, you know, contrast what is being shouted at us. And that's where I like to exist. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to, you know, be proven wrong, but I also want the respect to be proven right. And the only way you can get any sort of reconciliation, any sort of consolidation is to have these conversations and to highlight, um, you know, some of the points that they maybe want to overlook and they want to, you know, it's like the pot calling the kettle black. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, for anybody who wants to hear all about CBN, I, I had an episode with some guys up in Oregon, Flora Works. They are obviously Oregon is an adult use state and they are on the front line specifically making CBN through conversion. And they supply a lot of your very well-known big M marijuana brands, CBN. And that was the whole conversation we had was just unpacking that. And, and again, like you said, it's, it's exciting to hear that the things that I've absorbed and the things that I've heard are what you're also navigating through, because I think those are things, you know, that are very real when you're dealing with legislation, regulation. It's, well, again, when you say this word, you are not just meaning the THC, you're actually hurting other cannabinoids like CBN, like THCV, et cetera. And so being able to go in confidently to the regulators, to the, you know, the lawmakers, also to the consumers and have these conversations at a really high level, but also being able to communicate it using the language and helping correct and influence the language are really important steps that need to happen for us to get an industry where we can have access to these products in a safe and efficacious manner. And I'm just excited to continue having this conversation. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I learned a lot and I'm just grateful to have you share your voice and share your experience with my audience. So thanks again. Oh, of course. I'm honored to be here. And and I likewise to you, I'm very thankful for the time and very impressed by your knowledge set. And you. Uh, you know, you're a leader in the industry. Everybody I know knows you. So you're you're well respected. The information you bring, the platform you have, you're a force of nature and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate those kind words, Chris. Thank you again for being on the show. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So stay tuned. Thanks. Bye, y'all. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtorabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt.
love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com. 